The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You'll join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and this evening we will be looking at verses 11 through 25. You know, many of you are familiar with the name William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was born in 1759 in Hull, East Yorkshire, England. He graduated from Cambridge University with the intention of following on with a political career, and he became a member of Parliament for Hull in 1780 at the age of 21. Four years later, he became a member of parliament for the whole of Yorkshire. It was at this time that he began to work to abolish the British slave trade. Wilberforce was a committed Christian, and he was a popular figure. He was known to be charming and witty and a great public speaker. That's why a lot of people call me Wilberforce. No one's ever said that. (laughs) He once commented, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. He campaigned for a number of causes in his time in Parliament for legislation to improve the lives of the poor, for education reform, for for prison reforms, and for an end of uh, child labor. With the backing of his friend, a man by the name of William Pitt, who became prime minister, Wilberforce became a leader of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery. The society campaigned for almost 20 years to bring an end to British involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. The abolition campaign made them many enemies, most certainly among those who had made huge profits from the trade in enslaved African peoples. They called Wilberforce a fanatic, and in response he said, if to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. Wilberforce left Hull in 1792. He moved to Chapham, London, to be closer to his work in Westminster. And within the local community, he found friends who shared an interest in religion and politics with him. They became known as the Chapham sect, and they actively supported the anti-slavery abolitionists. Wilberforce attempted several times to bring a private member's bill before Parliament to end Britain's involvement in the slave trade, but the bill was defeated over and over and over again. It was finally passed on March 25th, 1807. However, this only went so far as banning British people from engaging in the slave trade, but it did not ban slavery altogether in the United Kingdom. This wasn't enough for Wilberforce. He strongly believed, he said, it is the true duty of every man to promote the happiness of his fellow creatures to the utmost of his power. And so even though Wilberforce retired from politics in 1825 because of his poor health, he continued to campaign for the abolition of slavery. 
Finally, on July 26, 1833, as Wilberforce lay on his deathbed, he was told that the slavery abolition bill granting freedom to all enslaved people within the entire British Empire had been passed by Parliament. He died three days later. He was an incredible man, a hero of the faith who was moved by his love for Christ, his love for his fellow man, regardless of where they were from, regardless of the color of their skin or their status in society. He knew it was right to love his neighbor. He knew it was right to fight for the rights of others to live as human beings. He said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. I'm reminded of Wilberforce as we once again turn our attention to the book of Exodus where we left off in the nation of Egypt. We have seen the ups and downs of the first two chapters as a result of the unjust, tyrannical reign of the Pharaoh. Out of an irrational fear that the Hebrew people would rise up against him and overthrow the Egyptians, and probably even more so out of a desire to use the Hebrew people in order to build his civilization, Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. He gave them heavy burdens and he set over them harsh taskmasters. And when he saw that God continued to bless the Israelites with more and more children, he saw that his plan had not worked, and so he demanded that the Hebrew midwives kill all of the Hebrew sons as they were being born, so that the males could not form a fighting force against him. The Hebrew midwives, of course, by faith, they refused to comply and God continued to bless the Hebrews that they continued to multiply more and more. Then Pharaoh commanded the people of Egypt saying, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Things were looking bleak for the Hebrew people. Surely it was a sad and a very fearful time for them. And then last week, as we got into chapter two, we saw a young Levite couple that had a son together. And by faith, they hid their son for three months and did not fear the Pharaoh, for they believed that God would protect them and would protect their son. After three months, they prepared for him a basket. They placed it in the Nile River and sent their daughter to watch the basket as it traveled. And to her surprise, it was discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter who immediately recognized that this is a Hebrew boy. But instead of doing what her father had decreed and simply casting him into the Nile River to die, she called for a Hebrew nurse to care for him. His sister retrieved the mother, and so the boy was reunited with his family for probably three or four years to be raised safely by those who truly loved him. Undoubtedly, they taught him all that his little mind could understand about their God and about his care for them. They took in every moment of every day because in time he had to return to the Pharaoh's daughter. She adopted him as her own son, She called his name Moses, and he grew up in the Pharaoh's household, receiving the finest of all luxuries, education, and training. 
Now, as we get to verse 11, we fast forward in the story about 40 years. Moses is a grown man, but we discover that he has not forgotten where he came from. He saw the burdens of the Hebrew people, his people, at the hand of the Egyptians, and he knew it was his time to do something about it. He couldn't sit back in comfort. He couldn't continue to live in luxury and say that all was fine because he was fine, so their burdens didn't matter. No, Moses had the same mentality as William Wilberforce. You may choose to look the other way, and he very well could have. And surely everyone around him would have thought that was exactly what he was going to do. But Moses knew you can choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Moses saw and Moses knew, and it was Moses' time to do something about it. Thousands of years before Wilberforce, we have one of the original abolitionists, Moses, the man who God would use to set his people free. Well, we pick up in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now there's a big jump here that I mention. In verse 11, it says Moses had grown up. Well, we learn in Acts chapter seven and verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So all we really know about Moses's early life is the first few months of his childhood and that he grew up into manhood in the house of the Pharaoh. Now, undoubtedly, Moses was full, uh, he was fully assimilated into the Egyptian way of life. And as we are going to see in a little while, he was even assumed by some to be an Egyptian, probably as a result of his manner of dress and his speech and his strong, healthy body and probably his intellect. He was born an Israelite slave, but his adoptive mother raised him as an Egyptian prince. The lives of the Israelites were hard. They ate scraps. They wore rags. But Moses ate the best of foods. He wore the finest of clothes. The Israelites worked under the threat of the whip, under the hot desert sun. But Moses spent his days studying under the most advanced tutors enjoying a life of leisure and pleasure. Externally, there really was very little about Moses that identified him with the Hebrew people. But the text reminds us that the Hebrews were his people. And the book of Acts tells us it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He would have known where, they, uh, where he had come from, And it's likely that he learned the history of his own people as he grew older. I know quite a few of you have immigrated to the United States when you were quite young, but in in some sense, you still identify with the people of your home nation. You're American by citizenship, 
Likely, quite proudly so, but you still have deep ties to where you came from. And in a sense, that's what we have with Moses. However, his people, the Israelites, were all around him. It wasn't as if he was far off and couldn't see what was happening to them. Every day, very likely every day, he could see what was going on with his brothers and sisters, working hard in the terrible conditions to do what Pharaoh had commanded. He saw their pain. He saw their grief. He recognized their plight, but now he is identifying with them. These are my people. Now everyone would expect that Moses would compare his life with the lives of the Israelites and say to himself, I've got it good. I'm glad I'm not with them. I'm just going to keep quiet and live my life in luxury and carry on with what I have going on here because my life is good. He could have just forgotten about his past. He could just live like a prince and everything would be easy. No pain, no suffering, no hard work, no real challenges in life. All of the splendor, all the splendor of Egypt lay before him. It was all there for the taking. But we will see that life wasn't for Moses in Egypt. It came into his heart to visit his brothers. So one day, Moses, at 40 years old, he goes out among the Hebrews and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, explains before the Sanhedrin, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now there's a few interesting things to consider here. First, we see in the text that before Moses confronted the Egyptian, he looked this way and that. Now based on what happened, it's easy to assume that he wanted to make sure that nobody was watching. However, it could have just as easily been the case that maybe he was wondering why nobody was intervening. Is everyone just going to go about their lives and suppose that this is normal? This is something we should accept? We should support this and be okay with it? Where is everybody? Well, we don't know exactly what the description is telling us, but whatever the case is, he saw nobody, and so he took the matter into his own hands. Now, some have concluded that Moses' actions were a clear act of passionate violence that was unjustified. Moses was right in defending the Hebrew, but perhaps went too far in killing the Egyptian. Others believe that it was completely justified on the basis of the ancient legal practice called lex talionis, meaning the law of retaliation. In essence, this is the law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. In this understanding, it is believed that the Egyptian was very clearly seeking to kill the Hebrew man, and so in order to save his life, Moses had to kill the Egyptian, and in so doing, he was justified in his actions. Others, like John Calvin, believe that Moses, quote, was armed by God's command and conscious of his legitimate vocation, rightly and judiciously assumed that character which God had assigned to him. In other words, Moses had some sense that he was to be a defender and a liberator of his brethren, the Hebrew people. 
And based on the inspired interpretation of this event in uh, Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, where he described it as Moses defending the oppressed man and avenging him by striking down the Egyptian, it would seem that perhaps Calvin's interpretation is the closest. Nevertheless, I do not think we can go as far as saying that Moses didn't do anything wrong at all. In all likelihood, Moses saw what was happening and having already settled in his heart that he was identifying with the Hebrew people and having some sense that it was his calling to help the Hebrew people, it all became too much. Perhaps it started as as Moses stepping in to defend and he never intended to take the man's life. But once he got started, he just didn't stop until the man had died. The impression that we get from the text is that he beat the man to death. He would just punch him and punch him until he died. So the anger for the injustice inflicted on his people essentially boiled over until this man had died. Moses had settled that he was going to be the earthly savior for the Hebrew people. And once he decided that was his role, he got to work. But we have to remember, God has not yet called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. God did not yet command Moses to strike down his oppressor. That time was coming, but Moses was acting in haste, it would seem. Augustine compares Moses' actions to that of the apostle Peter. Remember when, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and we, we read that Peter took out his sword and he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. And this is what Augustine says of them both. He says, both of them broke through the rules of justice, not through any base inhumanity, but through animosity that needed correction. Both sinned through their hatred of another's wickedness and their love, though carnal, in the one case toward a brother, in the other to the Lord. This fault needed pruning or rooting up, but yet so great a heart could be as readily cultivated for bearing virtues as land for bearing fruit. In other words, Moses shouldn't have killed the man, but it's understandable that he did given the circumstances that his people found themselves in and understanding that he had the role that he was given to undertake to free them in the days to come. As a newborn boy, Moses was saved from the Pharaoh. But now more than anything, Moses needed to be tamed for himself. He acted too quickly in his own strength and in his own time. He needed to learn to wait on the Lord. And based on his quick effort to bury the man in a shallow grave in the sand, I think it's safe to say that he knew he went too far. As we've seen all throughout the Bible, God uses fallible men to fulfill his great purposes. Text continues, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So despite going too far in his attempt to bring justice in this situation, perhaps Moses thought he would be at least received as a hero amongst his Hebrew brethren. After all, he single-handedly saved the life of one of their fellow countrymen. So how could any of the other Hebrews look at what he's doing and say that it was wrong? Once again, we need to hear from Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He said, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are my brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So you see, far from being lauded as a hero, Moses was now seen as a killer. They weren't ready for him because God had not yet prepared them either. And so at this point, things are still not looking good for Moses. And verse 14 tells us that he was afraid because obviously the word is out. Who told him? Did did the Hebrew who was saved from death tell his friends? Maybe maybe the man didn't want to be accused of the murder since he was the one who was being beaten and so he wanted to clear his name. Or maybe the body was found. How did they know? And it put fear in Moses' heart. The story, it seems to get bleaker and bleaker. Here we have a man who was, who was plucked from death to be raised in a position as a Hebrew into a life of Egyptian royalty. And if anyone could do anything for the Hebrew people with the availability of the resources and the connections and the training and the right education and to be the right kind of leader of liberation, it was Moses. But what now? Instead of receiving praise as a liberator, he alienates the Israelites. We go on verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So now there's a warrant out for Moses. He killed an Egyptian, and now his adoptive grandfather wants him dead. This is all very ripe for a Jerry Springer episode, a little family drama to make things interesting. So Moses is scared. And he flees to the land of Midian. It was a region that had been, had been settled by Midian, the son of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah. Now, the Bible doesn't indicate this at all, but this was no short journey for, Abra- uh, f- uh, for Moses. As the crow flies, he traveled over 200 miles to get to Midian, most likely on foot through the desert. So imagine the scenario. He's scared for his life. 
He's probably making this journey, and as he's going, he's continually looking over his shoulder. He's fearful of anyone he encounters. He's trying to get somewhere far away where he is not known. It's likely it took him weeks to get there. So, of course, it makes sense that when he arrives, he's exhausted. He sits down by a well, and wouldn't you know it, seven lovely ladies the daughters of the priests of Midian, they show up to water their father's flock. Other shepherds arrive and they try to to drive off the girls. But once again, Moses sees an injustice and he stands up to protect them. Now you might think by now that Moses would keep it cool. He just spent so much time alone out in the desert. He's fleeing from Pharaoh in Egypt. You would think Moses would say, Not my problem. I'm not doing this again. But justice is in his heart. He was standing for the weak and the oppressed, obviously with very little concern for his own well-being. He saved the girls, and they were able to water their father's flock. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, Raul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So the father of the girls is a priest, Raul. Now you're likely more familiar with his other name, Jethro. He's also sometimes called Jether, and other, other times he's called uh, Hobab, so take your pick. More than likely, the name we have here was his family name, Jethro, probably something like his first name, and the other two, maybe other names given to him by family, who knows. So Jethro is thankful for Moses' act of kindness, and he rewards him with a meal, and then he asks him to stay, he gives him a place to stay, and in time he gives him his daughter as a wife, one of his daughters named Zipporah. Together they have a son. They name him Gershom because Moses says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, of course, later we will see in the Mosaic law that there was to be a law against Hebrews marrying with non-Hebrews. But that was specifically, that law was specifically tied to the land that they would inherit because of the inevitable idolatry that would enter in. But this is a different situation. This was not on the inherited land. And so Moses' marriage to Zipporah was perfectly legitimate. So all of this goes down, and it might be easy to conclude that this is just a simple story giving us the details of Moses' life up until adulthood and how it was that he he found a wife, he had a son, but we have to see that there's a great clue as to what is going on in Moses' heart here in the name of his son. What is he saying? He's saying, Egypt is not my home. The Egyptians are not my people. He's making the break. He's saying, I am an Israelite. 
Now, once again, the writer of Hebrews helps us here. He writes in chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses gave up all that he had in Egypt to be identified with his people. And he did it all by faith. His concern wasn't for power. His concern wasn't for comfort and luxury. His concern wasn't for respect. His concern was for his people. His concern was for justice. His concern was for the glory and honor of God. Did you notice the the three scenes that we have in this passage? The Egyptian beating the Hebrew, the, the two Hebrews fighting, and then the shepherds with the daughters of Jethro. In all three scenes, Moses intervenes for the sake of justice. Did he jump the gun? Did he act rashly? Did he go too far in the first instance? I think at least... In that situation, we can say yes. But, but what we see in Moses is a man of action, acting in the face of injustice. We see God preparing him. He's not a perfect man, and nobody that God uses is, but he's a man that God will use to bring about his great purposes for his people. And so in literary terms, Excuse me. It's here in chapter two where Moses is revealed as the hero. He's he's moved to a place where he doesn't simply tolerate the people and and say that they're under his care uh, and he's going to put up with them. No, Moses identifies with the people. He enters into their suffering. It becomes his suffering. Their cry for redemption becomes his cry. And it's here where we see Moses, the hero, embrace the task of doing something about the plight of God's people to defend the oppressed and to liberate them from their oppression. Remember what Wilberforce said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Moses saw, but he did not look the other way. He entered in and he left everything behind, everything he knew to do what he believed was right. I'm reminded of a man that I knew very well. His name was Marty Barreras. He was my first sergeant while I was in the army for a time. Eventually he became a command sergeant major. He was celebrated as one of the best in the history of the United States Army. And in 2014, he was killed on the field of battle in Afghanistan. But I remember being on a mission one time with First Sergeant Barreras and we got back to our base and the other part of our unit had already left on another mission. We'd been out for a few days. We were completely exhausted and so we got food from the cooks and we went to our tent and we laid on our cot. I shared a tent with several other men and he was one of them. And when I got there, I realized that he hadn't eaten with us. I saw him sitting on the ground eating an MRE. Those are the meals ready to eat out of a plastic bag. 
Then when we all went to get some sleep, he laid his sleeping bag on the ground and he got into it. And one of the platoon leaders said, first sergeant, you ate an MRE and now you're sleeping on the ground. You realize we're not on a mission anymore, right? And he turned to that young lieutenant and he said, sir, we have men on the battlefield right now. So as long as they're eating MREs and sleeping on the ground, I'm doing it with them until they're back safely. You see, a real leader, a real shepherd of others identifies with them. Not just looking at their plight and saying, I'm sorry this is happening to you, but really becoming a part of the situation in a real personal way. Moses wasn't going to sit on his gold-plated bed with fine Egyptian blankets anymore. He was going to get on the ground with his people and lead them as a man amongst men. While they were suffering, he too would suffer. It was all part of God's plan to prepare Moses and the time would come when his identity, not as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but as an Israelite, would be the very means that God would use to rescue his people. But not yet. But do you notice here in this story how striking it is that Moses was welcomed by the Midianites but turned away by the Hebrews. He thought he was helping them, but they rejected him. The Midianites rewarded Moses for an act of justice while the Hebrews ran him off. By the end of Exodus 2, Moses is a failure as a citizen of Egypt and as a deliverer of his people. He's unwelcome in the nation of his birth and in his adopted nation. And so he's hanging out in some far off place with people who don't even know the true and living God. But what God is doing behind the scenes is something far greater than Moses could have ever imagined. God is preparing us as we read this story. He's preparing us to seek and find an even greater deliverer to come. A deliverer who, like Moses, will be rejected by his own people. A deliverer who, like Moses, would leave a great position of kingly royalty, a place of power, and a place of authority, and a place of comfort with all of the riches that could ever be had to identify with those who have been bruised and broken by the fall. This deliverer, Jesus, would suffer and die to pay the penalty for the sins of the people he came to save freeing them from darkness and bringing them into the marvelous light. And yet for a time they would say to him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Give us Barabbas, crucify him. But brothers and sisters, the good thing about chapter two is that it doesn't end there. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The people were finally desperate enough 
and they cried out to God for help. And we see a beautiful reality emerge. They cried out. It says God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant, God saw the people, and God knew. Unfortunately, here the NIV translates verse 25 as God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. New King James says God acknowledged them, but that's not what it says. The Hebrew rendering is literally God knew. God knew. That's beautiful. That is life-giving. Now, God didn't do anything yet, but he heard them. He remembered his covenant. He saw them in their plight, and he knew. The psalmist tells us that God's ears are open to the cries of his people. Brothers and sisters, our circumstances in this life are are different from one another in many different ways. We all face different challenges and trials and circumstances and difficulties and suffering in this life. But if you are a child of God and you are crying out to him, never forget that he hears you and he knows. Don't think that God is just wasting your time even when your life is not in the place that you thought it would be. All throughout these first two chapters of Exodus, things just seem to get worse and worse and worse, and it's predictable that in reading this, we might be tempted to say, where is God? He's hardly mentioned in these two chapters. Where is God? For hundreds of years, these people have suffered under slavery. They are supposed to be his people. He made all of these covenant promises with them, so where is he and what is he doing? It's a natural human response. Where's God? He's in all of the small things. He's in all of the details. Everything Pharaoh sought to do backfired in a way that nobody could have ever predicted. When Pharaoh enslaved the people of Israel to keep them from rising up against him, it led to great acts of bravery and faith. When he tried to put an end to all of the male infants, one showed up in his palace to receive training that he would need to be a liberator of the people that Pharaoh was trying to destroy. When Moses was on the run because of his attempt at justice, he was brought low in the desert to learn humility and maturity. He was brought to Midian to find what would eventually be a wise counselor in his father-in-law Jethro, a wife and a child. God was in the details because God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Now, brothers and sisters, when God seems absent, he's not. He's not. He's working for good. He's working for justice behind the scenes of even the worst tragedies. He doesn't take delight in suffering. And yet, behind it all, the suffering and the evil, he is working in his wisdom, in his timing to bring about good and to bring about justice. So when you're in the midst of your darkest days of life, don't freak out. Don't get arrogant and think, I will have to handle this on my own because obviously God doesn't care. No, he cares more than you will ever know. He is at work preparing you for what he has before you. 
And at this point, it's likely that Moses thought he was just going to live out the rest of his days in exile among the people of Midian. He's in the desert, which of course is a symbol of hard, dry times where streams of living water seem to be far off figments of our imagination. But God knew. And he was preparing Moses for what would come next. He would have a life-changing encounter with God in a burning bush. But he never would have gotten there if all of these other things hadn't happened first. God's wisdom is infinite. Ours is finite. Do you trust God's wisdom? God's power is absolute and he is sovereign. We are weak and wounded, and sick, and sore. Do you trust God's sovereignty? God knows all things and how all things will work together to bring about his great plan for his glory and for our good. We have very finite knowledge, and we know only what we can see with our own eyes. Do you trust God's omniscience? God is love. And his love for us surpasses all reason and all understanding. Our love is so often conditioned upon what others can give to and provide for us. Do you believe that God truly loves you and has for you what is best, no matter how difficult these days upon this earth might be? You know, as I think about what the text says, that God remembers It's very specific. God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. I'm afraid that all too often when Christians see something like this or hear that God remembers, what comes to our minds is that God is storing up a filing cabinet full of files about us and all the ways that we have sinned that he just adds it to the drawer every time something happens and that one day we're going to go before the Lord and we're going to have to uh, talk about each and every sin that we've committed through our lives. We have a view of God that he is so concerned about keeping track of all of this that we forget what the scriptures really teach us and tell us that he has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. What does God remember? God doesn't store up a memory bank of all of our sins. He casts them away. He remembers his promise, his promise that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved that the righteousness of Christ is enough, that you need not stand before him and try and make an excuse for each of these things that you have done, all of the words that you have said, all of the thoughts that you have thought, trying to make an excuse for them and say, I've done all these things, but look at my good works. Look at all of the ways that I have tried to honor you with my life. I know I have this sin, but hopefully my good deeds are enough. Friend, they are never enough. They will never be enough because God's standard is perfection. And so by faith in Christ, yes, God remembers, but what does he remember? He remembers your sins no more, and he remembers his promise that when you come to him by faith, you can have everlasting life. 
And friends, some of you in here are having a hard time finding God in the midst of your circumstances. Don't worry. You wouldn't be here seeking after God if he wasn't already seeking after you. There's a reason you're here tonight. I don't know all the things going on in your life. I don't know your heart, but I do know this. There is a God who gave his only son into this world to save sinners like you and me. There are no promises that life in a sin-sick and fallen world will be easy. But there is a great promise that by faith in Christ alone, we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can look at all of our trials, all of our troubles, all of our distress and say, just a little while longer. Because God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. In a very real sense, like the Israelites under Pharaoh, those who are without Christ are slaves to sin. Friend, if you do not know Christ, you are in the chains of your own sin and rebellion. And I could very well just see it and look away and pretend like I never saw it. But like Wilberforce said, I could never, I could never claim that I have done the right thing. I could never claim that I did you any favors out of love by not telling you that you are in slavery to your sin. Friend, if you do not know Christ, without him, when you think, is there any way out of this? If your response is that you're going to find your own way, you're going to be able to break free, you're going to make a run for it, you're you're only going to find yourself deeper into the desert with no water in sight. But I'm here to tell you that, that just over the hill, there's water that you can drink. And when you drink it, you will never thirst again. There's bread to eat that when you eat it, you will never hunger again. Look to Christ that you might live. All of the challenges of your life are not designed for you to shake your fist at God and blame him for the sin that is in your life that has been caused because of your own evil deeds. They're all designed to bring you to himself that you might no longer depend on yourself, but you might find rest in the true deliverer who gave himself as a ransom for many. Will you believe on Christ this very hour and receive God's free gift of everlasting life? Brothers and sisters, may we never forget God hears you. He's not deaf to your pleas for mercy. God remembers his promises and he reminds us he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. God sees your suffering. God sees your trials. God sees your pain. God sees your challenges, whatever they are, and he never turns a blind eye. Brothers and sisters, God knows. He knows your makeup and he knows the plans that he has for you. The days and the months and the years may seem long, but they're only but a small dot on the timeline of eternity. So hold closely to the one who knows, and in time you will see that you have truly been set free. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you that you hear us, that you remember your promises, that you see our lives and all the circumstances within them, and that you know. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. And you love us more than we could ever describe. And so, Lord, help us as your people to trust you, to trust in your wisdom, to trust in your sovereignty, to trust in your omniscience, to trust that you truly do love us, which you have displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you help us to draw near to you, that when we find ourselves wandering in the midst of the desert, unsure of where to go because of all that lays behind us and fear for what lays ahead. Help us to remember that water of life that we have drank. Help us to remember the bread of life that we have eaten. And we pray tonight, O God, for those who have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that you might be pleased to send your spirit and to give them new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.